We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a popular return guest who I will be introducing in a minute. But first of all, just wanted to let you all know that we are trying this podcast on video in addition to the uh, traditional audio. So welcome to anyone watching us on video. I I think this is uh, new, especially for me, although, of course, I have done it on How to Chess. But depending on how much interest there is in this, uh, we may do more podcasts featuring videos in the future. And I figured this guest was a good one to have do video because he is no stranger to the video format. He is a perennially underrated chess YouTube, a Twitch streamer, a prolific and highly reviewed chessable author, um, Hungarian-born, Australian-based. He has a very pure heart while other people are discussing drama all the time. All he wants to do is help your chess. And here to help us do that is I am Andres Toth back on the show. Welcome, Andres. 
Thank you so much. Uh, that was an intro and a half, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Well, you've got this amazing ability to stay out of the muck, Andres. You're, you know, you're on, you're on Twitter. You're promoting your videos as you should be, your fantastic YouTube videos, but no discussion whatsoever of chess drama, and I admire you for that. Oh, thank you. Look, uh, that was a definitely a conscious choice, so I, I wanted to stay out of that, and I really, really think that that was the right call to make, and... Uh... As far as the content creation is concerned, um, you could see that every man and his dog was farming the the drama like there was no tomorrow. The number of uh, YouTube videos on this was just absolutely outrageous. But once again, you know, I'm here for the chess and um, I feel like that whole entire story was stirring too far away from it for my liking. So we stuck with the uh, with our guns and, uh, you know, chess content is, is the way to go. Well... I agree. I mean, of course, I've been farming the content, too. I, I like to think that I'm providing a more thoughtful view than some other content providers, but certainly been uh, been uh, doing a lot of bonus coverage. We should say we're recording this on October 10th. Um, so if anything crazy happens before this is released, um, such is uh, such is the way of life. But anyway, Andres, I can't help but wonder before we get to the chess improvement, which will be the primary topic of our conversation, do you have secret opinions? Like, are you following the story and forming opinions and just re refusing to indulge in it in Twitter and in your videos? Or are you just kind of managing to focus on the work and the chess and not even thinking about this uh, Magnus Carlsen, Hans Niemann story? Look, I, I think that uh, it would be pretentious to say that I don't have opinions. In fact, it would be pretentious from anyone, really. I think that uh, anyone was uh, affected and impacted by it. And I, think, I think that the whole chess world was shaken up. And in some ways, it's great. Uh, I think that it uh, you know, pointed out the elephant in the room that uh, we might have problems uh, on a global scale with our game and how safe it is to play. So I think that was definitely a great positive that came out of this story. And I did have my opinion, but uh, my general impression was, was that um, the whole story started, really the drama started with Magnus um, pulling out of the St. Louis tournament. And uh, if you think about how much extra information have we as the chess community gathered from that point to up to now, that is actually relevant to that particular case, which is the over-the-board allegations, I am still saying it's vastly insufficient and hardly noticeable. A lot of other ticks and things have been unearthed, and you may very well argue that they are very important. But as far as uh, the Magnus Carlsen, Hansen, Niemann um, beef is concerned, we don't know hardly anything extra other than what we knew on the day when Magnus walked out. yeah, And that was one of the main reasons, by the way, why I decided to not to say anything, because I kept on saying, I don't know enough. And I don't think we do now. So, And I don't think we ever will, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I, I reluctantly agree, especially about the, that it doesn't seem like we're ever going to know. Um, we can only... You know, we'll we'll get more circumstantial evidence based on how Hans performs and stuff like that, um, and maybe people doing more digging. But anyway, I'm glad I got one take out of you on that topic, Andres. But but let's get to the chess improvement without further ado. That's what people want to hear from you. So we got a great. I mean, we so I took to Twitter. Um, you know, 
I got my own chest improvement problems, but I don't want this to be too um, me centric. So I wanted to get the people's problems. And we got a great question right off the bat from Jason King, who asks Andres, he says, he just started working with a coach and he wonders what qualities or habits have you seen in adult learners who do go on to make significant gains in improvement? Whoa, big jumping right in the deep end, Ben. It's a beautiful question. It is a marvelous question indeed. Um, Look, I think that there is not really a major difference in terms of adult improvers versus just in general as students. So you need to be resilient. You need to be able to adapt. And you really, really need to have the skill to accept that uh, you may know things incorrectly and you might have to unlearn and relearn a lot of things and reshape who you are as a chess player. So accept that you are fallible, accept that you are not perfect and uh, be willing to work real hard. I think these are all key components. Usually the way, the one thing that I would point out is, is that it's more typical with adult improvers than with, let's say, younger students is, is that they bring a set of habits, usually bad ones, to the table. And they are usually not so easy to you know, get out of that, those habits. So once again, if you are adaptable, if you are willing to change, if you are willing to accept new ways, I think that's the way to go. And would you say, this is that, can that like replace hard work? Are there people you're seeing making progress who aren't doing multiple hours a day? Or is that just like the bare, you know, the bare minimum, and then you have to put in hours a day on top of that? Well, I do think that they work hand in hand. So, you know, if, uh, some of your bad habits, for example, um, are not going to go away without working hard. <laughs> so it's just the first step is to be able to recognize that, yeah, this is not not how I'm meant to play or this is not what I'm meant to do. And then working on changing that and turning that around, I think that both are vitally important. Okay. And and we have and we're going to be jumping into a bunch of questions because we got a good some good ones and this one I believe is related. Uh, this one is from a Patreon supporter of Perpetual Chess Shubham Kumtakar, who he has a few questions, but we'll start with this one. He says some players perform exceptionally in training sessions, solve relevant puzzles, put in the required self practice, and yet their gameplay doesn't reflect the same. What could be stopping such players from applying their skills in real game situations? Nerves, yeah. Inexper- nerves, lack of experience would be my number one and two guesses in this case. So the more you play over the board, the more likely that you will be able to translate your um, training and your knowledge into results. And I'm assuming that um, he was or she was referring, sorry, I didn't catch the name, um, referring to over the board. Yeah, uh, I assume so. Well. But even with online, although we tend to play online a fair bit, so I think it's more typical when you go to an online, to- uh, sorry, an over the board tournament, all of a sudden the nerves kick in, you feel overwhelmed, and uh, that often leads to a mental block. And uh, in my opinion, the easiest way to get over it because it can come from you know, your personality as well. If you tend to be, if you have a tendency to get nervous in stressful situations, it's experience. It's really just uh, do it. The more you do it, the better you get at it. One one would hope so. Although Andres, <clears throat> again, as we record this, I have an interview with Olf Anderson coming out tomorrow. And it was interesting to hear him discuss nerves. And he said he started getting really nervous in his 40s and it's gotten worse since then. So not to discourage people, but I found that interesting even for an elite player that nerves don't necessarily get better. Um, You just have to manage them sometimes. 
Yeah, I suppose. But look, the, the other thing is that we forget is that the nerves is a body reaction, which is supposed to get the best out of you. Right. So you're not nervous because you are about to fail or because of the, you know, like that, that is just an unnecessary bad thing, but to, just to make your life miserable. It means that your body tells you that this is important. You have prepared for this. Now it's the time to perform. Um, and uh, off you go. Even the greatest actors have a bit of a nerve in them, even if they feel extremely comfortable on stage. It would be absolutely inhuman and unnatural. I think the question is more to how to channel it into something positive rather than something that blocks you. So to counterbalance the nerves, I think that you, you need to have a few calm moments when you sit down with yourself and you just go like, yep, I'm here to play a game of chess. I'm prepared. I'm excited. In fact, that's a very important part that I want to enjoy it. I want to have a good time. And um, just, yeah, to go like, look, I'm 1700. I'm playing an 1800. What's the worst that can happen? And if you clear up the facts, it's always difficult to to fight feelings and emotions with rationalism. But still, I think giving it a red hot go uh, is definitely um, uh, going to help at least a little bit. At yeah. least a little bit. And in the grand scheme of things, like, you know, it's not really a big deal. We, we are here to play chess, to have fun. And uh, no matter what happens, we are going to go home to our loved ones in the end of the day. And the circle begins again. So I think that the, one of the biggest traps with chess and I spoke about this somewhere else recently, may have been actually on my channel, is that it's a competitive hobby. And competitive hobbies tend to be occasionally, they, te they have a tendency to cause um, grief because you lose and you go like, wow, this sucks. Why do I do this? You know, like a stamp collecting, no offense to the stamp collector community, uh, that doesn't have this negative uh, potential negative effect that you play a game of chess or two or a whole tournament and you feel absolutely miserable about yourself. Hmm. But we took it on board when we decided to have a competitive hobby. Like it or not, it's about win and lose. Or if it's not about it, sorry, I rephrased that. It's a, an integral part of what we do is that in the end, there will be a winner and a loser. So you must accept that before you start, not you know afterwards. That's way too late. So embrace the process is, uh, I guess, a cliche, but a very important uh, mentality shift that needs to be applied there too. That's an excellent point. And I guess we know now why Anatoly Karpov is a stamp collector. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Andres, when you were playing, obviously you haven't been as active OTB, uh, family and uh, you know multiple careers and uh, so on and so forth. Um, but were you the type to get nervous before your games? No, but uh, to be perfectly honest with you, when I say a very crystal clear and uh, straight no, I did have nerves, but I think they proportionally they were the right amount. I, I got nervous enough to get the best out of me. I never got so nervous that the nerves got in the way of my thinking, of my actions, anything like that. I usually... I consider myself very fortunate in this regard, and I don't think it has nothing to do with training or anything at all, but I tend to excel in situations where other people get very nervous. I love job interviews. Like I really, really enjoy job interviews. I've done a few in my life, and almost always that was by far the best part of my application. I interview better than writer CV. So, you know, it's like I, I really like those situations. I love when people I, – I used to love it. I thrived on it when I had a game of chess OTB and uh, something happened on the board that attracted crowds. 
Right. I absolutely loved it. When my when my board was surrounded by people, you know that feeling when the light can hardly come down onto your board because there is a giant circle of people watching the, the drama, the actual meaningful drama, like what happens in this super exciting position, that also tends to cause mental blocks to people and they get just uh, overwhelmed. To me, somehow these were exciting moments. I guess it's just coming from the fact that I started competing at a fairly young age. And I also grew up in a sport-loving environment where I watched a lot of sports, lot of lots of athletes, and obviously all kinds of athletes thrive on this kind of atmosphere when the pressure is on and you need to perform. And were you a good test taker? I, you hear it some, sometimes that like chess players, competitive chess players can be good test takers as well. Uh, I wouldn't say that necessarily because that would have required very thorough studying first. See, I, I was much better at oral exams where I would have a chance to talk myself out of trouble when you're <laughs> taking a test. That is not going to happen. So, yeah, I think it, when it comes to test taking and chess players, I think it's just a general, uh, a little bit of a cliched uh, connection being made between being intelligent and uh, being a chess player. Like Andres, we got to we got to keep head. that uh, misconception going. You're not you're not doing us any favors here. I didn't say it was a. Did I say it was a misconception? No, you. Uh, I said cliche, right? Uh, yeah. Let's okay. go with cliche. It's not misconception. Okay, great. All right, let's get to the to the next uh, question from Twitter. Svant Henriksen asks. He says, for those who study a lot by themselves, would you recommend going through the same material many times if it's not sticking initially? If I were them, I would try to figure out why it's not sticking. Because my, I read that question, by the way, before we started the interview, and it made me think that that's, something is not right there, uh, in my opinion. And uh, if you think about it, you read a book of any kind in life, right? And everyone tells you it's a great book, read it, it's, you will love it. And you read the book and you just go, what's going on here? You naturally must question, is something wrong with the book or is something, am I not mature enough for the content? Like, why is it that we are not a, a good match here when we were supposed to be? Uh, I remember that when I started reading, and I know it's a horrid example, but I will go with it, War and Peace by Tolstoy. After like 100 pages, I went like, this is utter garbage. I don't <laughs> want this. And then I went back to it two years later, and I read through the thing in like five days. I just wasn't ready for it. And the same happened uh, with several other books that I read in my life. And I think that in chess, the same is applicable. If it doesn't do that, uh, what it's intended to do and what you heard that others you know, were saying, you know, that, oh, I read that book and that this is a life changer, perhaps your chess is not on that level yet where you can actually absorb that next level of information and that next layer of learning. Go back to it later. But I don't believe, you know, repeatedly redoing the same book and getting the same nothing out of it. So... First, we need to figure out why it's not working. And now I will actually create a question for myself because I'm very good at that. The other day I made a uh, review about the Yusupov books, um, which I do really consider to be an outstanding book series, the, uh, the Boost Your Chess series. And uh, I received a few comments on YouTube saying that, oh, this is such an overhyped book. And uh, I looked at the book, I went through the first X amount of examples and I could solve none. And it really made me think about what is a good fit book for any learner. And um, I realized, or I came up with this idea actually yesterday, strongly related to the, the Yusuf of book, but actually puzzle books in general would uh, fall under this category perfectly well. And I think that a book is a good fit for you 
if uh, you are getting somewhere between, let's say, 40 to 70% of the content right, if you are below that point, that means that that book is way too hard for you. If you can't solve at least, you know, 30% of the puzzles, it, it just means it's too hard. You're not ready. And likewise, if you are solving more than 80%, you're wasting your time because there is no value in there for you. There is no newly learned content. And so I think that we need to find that that golden middle where it's challenging, you struggle, but you also succeed noticeably all the way along the way. You have regular success. You have the occasional failures as well. And so there is learning taking place. If you stick out on either side of that spectrum, I think that that's not a good fit book. Yeah. But this is this is best uh, working, in my opinion, with puzzle books where it's measurable. You know, like you can't do this with a game collection or it's very difficult to measure. But the Yusupov book is a textbook example because it's super measurable. You get points after every puzzle, so you know immediately where you are. Okay, yeah, the Yusupov books, I'm ashamed to admit I still haven't read, but I, I have heard overall good things. Um, mm. And and what you said about getting 40 to 70% right, uh, Peter Giannatos basically gave the same advice uh, based on, on his experience um, when I interviewed him. And on the topic of chess books, Andres, I know one of your most popular YouTube videos is about chess books, our How to Chess interview. We talked about how to read chess books. And uh, Shubham Kumthakar was also wondering if since our last interview about one and a half years ago, um, if you've come across any newer chess books that, that you recommend or enjoyed. Yeah, now I, I really don't know, you know, what books we discussed last time. Um, we talked about before the interview, uh, Ramesh's uh, um, Mastering Chess Calculation, which is, oh boy, that that is that is an absolutely divine masterpiece. It's extremely difficult, mind you. And again, it falls perfectly in the category of what I just described, that you can decide very easily if that book is a fit for you or not, uh, based on the measure that I just told you. Uh, but simply, you know, as someone who is a bit of a bibliophile who loves, you know, books, just the feel of them, to look at them, to open it up and just uh, have 10 minutes of me time with a chess book. Oh, boy, the Ramesh book was definitely an awesome one. But I must admit that this was the first time when I reviewed the Yusupov books uh, that I looked at uh, all the nine of them actually in detail. So uh, I really immensely enjoyed um, the Yusupov books, and uh, I made it part of my coaching regimen, and uh, yeah, they actually had a lasting impact on me. I think that we might have already discussed the uh, the pawn structure book. Well, um, we've got a question about pawn structures, so so we could discuss it a bit more. But yeah, chess structures is uh, is an amazing yeah. book, and yeah, someone on Twitter did ask. Um, <laughs> Uh, Kramnik student who's uh, you know been oh. a chess fan for years. I always see him in yeah. the Chess Twenty Four chat. chat. Uh, he asked, uh, "How does one go about go about learning about pawn structures? Are there any books you recommend in that area?" So there's a softball for you, Andres. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, that, that's let let me smash that one down very very quickly. <laughs> so the the chess structures, the Grandmaster Guide, which by the way has that title is, in my opinion, a little bit misleading because that's a guide for all of us. Thank goodness is a beautiful book, an absolutely sensational book. At points, I think the content, especially the games, because the, the, the examples are selected from really top-end games for the most part, can be a little bit tough. But I think that the author has done a sensational job at really breaking down to very basic concepts and ideas 
as to what's happening in what bone structure. And so kudos to uh, Flores Rios because, boy, what a book that is. So I definitely recommend uh, that one. I think there is a Saltis book that talks about bone structures, which is not too bad. That is probably a good one to begin with before you go to the Grandmaster Guide to Bone Structures. And before the Bone Structure Guide uh, came out, uh, one of the the most uh, spoken books about bone structures was the Sokolov one, uh, Winning Bone Structures. Right. Um, my problem with the Sokolov book is is that it's nowhere near as thorough in this in sense that it doesn't cover anywhere near as many different bone structures as the the Flores Rios book does. And also it's quite heavy, which is a testament to what a great coach and chess expert Sokolov is. Hello, welcome, Captain Obvious, uh, captain <laughs> of the Olympic champion team at the moment, Ivan Sokolov and legendary grandmaster. So, yeah, that book is beautiful as well. I really loved it uh, when I was younger and I worked on that one. But once again, that doesn't quite cover the full spectrum. Yeah, well said. And I was kind of surprised to even see that question from Kramnik student because, again, I've seen him online enough where I know he's like a hardcore chess fan. And I was mm. like, he, he has to be aware of uh, chess structures. Like, you know, it gets name checked almost more than like any other book or course. Um, and it's hard to because it's uh, got such a richly and well-deserved reputation. Um it's hard to come up with with more examples than that. So, but uh, before we move on, Andres, could could you give? I could certainly attempt at least in the case of chess structures. But could you give like rating guidelines both for chess structures and the Yusupov series? Like, what's the minimum rating that should try to tackle these <laughs> books slash courses? Yeah, Ben, you are asking very good questions. I would say about 1,800 feet is already good enough for to, to have a, a look at uh, the Grandmaster Guide. And so anyone below that, I would go with Saltis. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they, every is, everything is going to stick. But, you know, when you are starting exploring with uh, pawn structures, almost inevitably, you are going to start with the ones that you are already playing, right? So there is already an existing layer of knowledge that you are building upon. And so that's why I... I, you know, drew that line perhaps a little bit too low, but I do believe that the 1800s will easily pick up very important key concepts from uh, the Pawn Structures Grandmaster Guide. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I've mentioned before that I do think that if you're below 1800 and you, you hear it recommended so much that you're like, oh, man, like, <laughs> I want to check it out, too. Like, I think it's reasonable to to get it and just look at your specific structures. You might not get mm. get everything, but it can't hurt, you know? Exactly. Um, exactly. Um, and what about um? so the Yusupov series? Where where does where does if one wanted to start with those, what level do you think they need to be? Look, uh, the Yusupov books uh actually do a favor to us because they they rate themselves so um yusupov himself recommended the first book so the number one uh books the three of them for below 1500 feet a yeah um sorry to cut you off i've heard his ratings are a little off i've heard he look uh the same was said about ramish and um which is is true shout out to ramish but his books are no joke look (laughs) But that, is it really dark? Because this is exactly why I told you this uh, This 4070. The other day I did a, a test, uh, Ben, on stream. And I asked 10 random viewers of mine to participate in a, in a test that I just devised and made up right on the spot, which was that I took an entire chapter of the Yusupov book and I tested them, every single one of them. And the ratings ranged from... Um, 
I'm telling you online rapid ratings here from 1200 to 2100. And uh, the score that I got out of that was that there were two people, both of them on the north of 2000, who smashed almost every single puzzle. Therefore, not a good fit. Right. They needed a second box. There were about two to three who clearly could not handle it because they just got almost everything wrong. And the remaining five or six were in that right bank spank middle of 40 to 70 where, you know, they got two, two right, then one wrong, then two right, then one wrong, then two wrong, one right. So it followed that pattern that I would have considered to be you know, useful. I think it's also important to note about the Yusupov book that although it's openly saying, in fact, in the preface of the book, that it's trying to be a book that you can work with without a coach, which is not many books offer you that, in my opinion, and uh, rightly so, actually. But I do think that if you go through with that, uh, you go through that material with the coach first, and let's say you have 1,500 fide, I think there's a nice hot chance that you are going to actually learn a lot. I do agree that it's definitely a little bit on the, maybe a little bit too too low side of um, of the, the spectrum. So we, we might want to say 1,600, 1,700s. And I think that the, the, the other criticism of that book series, altogether the series, all the nine of them, is, is that the topics in the books really, really range in terms of difficulty. Right, like even in the one same book, there is a topic that you would say, "Holy moly, this is way harder than anything we have done and seen in this book so far." So it's a little bit inconsistent. But when when you are dealing with a book that offers you, you know, various concepts and puzzles on ranges of topics from opening to middle game to pawn structures to end game strategy to um, to how to attack to how to play dynamically to how to defend, inevitably you are going to miss the mark occasionally. It's a very ambitious book. It tries to cover a lot. It does cover a lot. It can't be perfect. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. And and with the Ramesh one, he also does have different levels. And we should mention it's available on Chessable now. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're we're lucky to have him making the time for these um for for these uh, endeavors when he's not coaching phenoms like uh, Pragananda. Look, to his defense, by the way, and I don't want to sound stupid, but Ramesh has been working for the vast majority of his career with Indian prodigies, right? Yeah. They are notably underrated. And I'm not saying the Indian prodigies. I think that in general, Indian players are especially in the beginning of their career. That's a good point. Yeah. In terms you, of- you do find that phenomenon that uh, a lot of countries generate... Um, inflated ratings or inaccurate ratings when they keep on playing amongst themselves and they are not exposed to the the big wide world and since india you know produces so many chess players and they have so many tournaments they don't really have to travel per se uh, to play elsewhere and so they have their mini chess ecosystem with their rating and whatnot and it's quite easy to see or quite easy to um you know, to accept the fact that uh, their rating may be, you know, slightly off of what we consider to be right. So that could be a reason why Ramesh's evaluation is such. And also, I think having worked with a lot of kids who are incredibly quick on the uptake when it comes to these new concepts and, uh, you know, they are willing to put in the hard yards, they have the time to put in the hard yards, their trajectory of development is entirely different. Yeah. 
Excellent points, Andres. All right, Andres, we got to take a break and then we're going to be back with some more uh, chess improvement Q&A. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Of course, Chessable uses space repetition to help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns, um, specific end games, whatever it may be that you need to work on on your game. Uh, some of their latest courses include Understanding Chess Openings Part 3 by none other than Big Vladdy, former world champion, Grandmaster Vladimir Kramnik, sharing his lifetime of expertise on uh, how to respond to various E4 possibilities. So be sure to check that out. And they have a, a free preview for Chessable Pro members. So please just remember to make it part of your routine to go to chessable.com and check out uh, all of their new offerings, which are available both for free and for purchase. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back and we have more questions from the Twitterverse. Uh, this one is somewhat specific, but I think some other people may find it useful. It's from Sir Rooksy, who's asking, um, what would be your approach if you were around 1,700 feet a and looking to reach the next level, say 1,900 plus? What would your strategy be, your approach to learning? What resources would you use, some of which we may have just discussed? And how would you develop your improvement plan? <laughs> Yeah. Look, uh, in general, Ben, I don't like very broad questions because I am a big believer of uh, a case-to-case approach. There are new, there are no two chess players who are the same kind. They all have their own unique strengths and their unique weaknesses. And I think that me as a chess coach, my job is to discover both as soon as possible and then ensure that the student thrives on their strengths and they try to, you know, pick up and get better at what they are weak at. So, you know, I could tell you that in general, but I'm going to just uh, pile up cliches here. I would tell you that usually 1700s, uh, if they seem to hit a plateau, that could usually come from calculation not being on point and therefore that needs to be addressed rather sooner than later usually their opening repertoire is quite shaky as well so that is something to look into and their chess principles the way they approach the game the way how they start thinking and creating plans when they are out of book is generally speaking a little bit lacking um so these would be my my generic ideas but as an overall general coaching plan it is so difficult to craft one like i said without knowing the individual i would most certainly spend a lot of time on calculations like a a significant chunk of that uh, coaching time or training time would be going into that and some um game analysis so going through a game collection um which we have discussed uh, already um i believe in the other interview a number of books that offer that so that would be probably my focus yeah, and on the topic of chess principles, are there any like courses you could recommend? <laughs> no, I, I absolutely have no idea why I would have brought that up. Um, Mr. Chess Principles Reloaded. Um, yeah, look, 
they they have been very well received and very it's popular. It's a fantastic I, course. Jokes aside, I, I do want to hope that uh, it has helped a lot of players to to cross certain barriers and plateaus that they didn't think was possible beforehand. Okay, and the next question back to Shubham. This is his last question, but it's another good one. Were there any self-training methods that you used during your formative years that you feel were especially beneficial? There was one, but I think it was very special to me. And I'm not saying that it was special to me because I'm so awesome or anything like that. On the contrary, it's just something that worked for me a great deal. First of all, I didn't really have to do a lot of self-coaching in the sense that I have always been fortunate enough to have coaches, at least in the part of my career when I wanted to grow and become a better player. What I did a lot that was not even intentional uh, coaching or learning was, was that I read a lot of chess books for fun. So that was like not part of my coaching regimen. That was like me lying around on the couch on a Sunday afternoon holding a chess book while watching the basketball with dad. And, you know, the examples are endless of uh, in what environments I would be able to grab a chess book and read and just absorb what was there. And I didn't really do it consciously. Like I said, I did it because I enjoyed it. I just liked reading chess. I went through all the chess magazines from like the 70s. And, and you know, like I got a fairly, a fairly large... Um, uh, stock of games in my head like I memorized a, f- a fair bit of games and the vast majority of them were not intentional memorizations I never really sat down with the purpose of memorizing a game it's just that I saw it so many times or it left a lasting impression as I read the book or the magazine or whatever that was that it just stayed there and the same applies to names and places like I recognize a fair few games uh, if you show me a position, I'm reasonably pretty good at recognizing famous games. It's I've, just noticed, that, I've noticed that. Just yeah, I just, you on I, just yeah. Loved, I just loved reading yeah. about chess and I grabbed every opportunity I could to do so. And um, that was it. But like I said, I would not recommend that as, you know, this is what you do to get better. That was more of a pastime on top of my usual chess things. But as for what I did for myself was what we agreed with the coach at the time. So that would have been, you know, at a significant chunk of my junior career, I would do um, composed chess studies, mostly pawn endings. That was a fair bit. I would solve a lot of puzzles by myself because that doesn't really need a coach. So, yeah, those yeah. two were the, the, both of them to improve calculation. Okay. Uh, back to the reading books on your own. Did you happen to hear Mag- Magnus Carlsen went on this this big podcast, the Lex Friedman podcast, and did like a few hour interview? Uh, yep. about, you heard that? Uh, I will. I listened to some of it. I don't know if I listened to all the way. So please finish okay. your question. Well, what it made me you. think of is um, he said he was talking about his upbringing as a player. And he was referring to when he started going to the Norwegian Training Institute. And he said that his coach, who I assume would have been Simon Agastein, but maybe it was someone who who preceded Simon. Um, but he said that he would try to give him these hard puzzles and give him calculation exercises, and it just wasn't working. Magnus didn't want to do it. So he ended up uh, switching his approach and telling Magnus, you can take any book off the shelf and read it. And then Magnus, whenever he was at the Chess Institute from that point forward, he would just he was just swapping out books and just devouring them. So that, that made me mm. think of, uh, of your story. Yeah. Yeah. There is definitely a, a correlation there. I mean, I think you would, you would have to have a part of it. it flatters me to know when that you're comparing me to Magnus. Um, <laughs> you, you would need to have that inner desire. Like it, it doesn't work if, if 
if you know the student doesn't have that in them to want to read books yeah. like if the coach had said you know what read whatever you want and then magnus goes like no thank you i would rather play bullet all day long not gonna work right. so it's always a, a fortunate thing when you actually you know hit that note that uh, resonates so well with both the coach and the student sometimes it's reading books sometimes it's it's something else but uh yeah reading book in, books in general and see this Let's flip it around. I do get concerned as a coach if I find out or if I notice, especially with young students, that they don't engage with chess content of any kind in their free time. Mm-hmm. If, if learning chess is a chore that we do for an hour because the coach said so, and when the hour is over, then we just clock out and off we go and chess stop existing that's very concerning to me because that tells me that there is there is no real passion there and as much as that is an overused cliche passion that is uh i do think that there is no way that that anyone can make it in chess without absolutely madly loving chess 24 7 yeah well said um and i had another question for you andres i was reviewing our last interview and you'd mentioned um your work with uh, Laszlo Hazai. I s- struggled to pronounce his name last time, as I will this time, just for uh, consistency. You did well. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, and you mentioned he had worked with Judith, and now you've got a course out with Judith. So it's uh, yep. uh, a three-part course. So I'm curious if you guys like reminisced about working with him and, and more generally what it was like to uh, work with the legend herself. Uh, look, um, when it came to working with Laszlo, uh, Judith and I, we worked um, at different parts Yeah, different of ages, our lives. I, so it, but I mean, did you like, discuss it? Uh, we did briefly talk about it, uh, it uh, for sure, yes. So that, that was definitely a, a common talking point. Having said that, um, our timing was always very tight, so uh, we had to focus on the work. Because you can imagine how busy Judith is. Right. And so, you know, committing to a, a free course series with deadlines... Um, it was a fairly intense, uh, intense uh, work regimen. Having said that, it was absolutely mind-blowing experience for me. Like uh, I, I was so so happy and honored to work with her. And uh, Judith is a true chess player through and through. Like even despite the uh, the, the tight uh, times and whatnot, there was almost never a meeting that we would have had when we wouldn't have gone like oh by the way have you seen this study it's absolutely mind-blowing check this out and we would just trail off to some completely random topic uh, that had nothing whatsoever to do with the course just to you know sometimes it did actually um just to you know entertain ourselves with chess like that that is actually a, a true Uh, representation judith herself about uh being passionate about chess like uh, she's just uh yeah an absolute bomb when it comes to these uh you know how much she loves chess and how much she's willing to engage and how excited she gets about you know the smallest thing like i showed her a study she hasn't seen and she was like well don't tell me don't tell me i want to solve it don't tell me and like immediately the competitor is right there and oh it was just such a joy to to be part of that it was awesome that's that's awesome. Yeah, I watched. I I haven't watched the courses. I'm I'm actually not sure if I'm the target audience or not. Maybe you can help me answer that. But I did watch one of her 17 minute intro videos for these chessable courses. This um, learn chess from Judith series, and I could see the enthusiasm then. And I was like, man, maybe I should be watching these. So all of this leads to the question, Andres. This is a three part series. What would you say is the the target audience for your collaborations with Judith? 
Paul guy. Oh, uh, look, uh, the initial idea there was was that we were going with rating gaps of uh, 1400, 1700, and then 2000. So roughly that was the 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 three. Uh, the three gaps between the courses. I think in the end uh, there would have been some overlaps where some topics were harder and some easier. Like I said, I, again, I'm going to repeat myself, but when you are doing a course or a book, it doesn't matter, that covers chess in general and is not directed at a specific topic, it is incredibly difficult um, to to you know retain that same level of difficulty across the course like how do you compare an opening idea to a pawn ending right you know what i mean like it, it is so so difficult and i don't try to excuse ourselves and i think that we did a great job in um trying to accommodate the needs of uh um, the students of those rating ranges but um, I am more than happy to accept if someone says oh that particular example was a bit too hard or too easy or, or whichever Okay, but you know, as long as that's the worst criticism we get, I think we we've done a, a, a great job, and actually the reception of the courses have been great. So, I think that uh, that collaboration was fruitful in every way possible. Excellent, yeah. Um, I, I don't doubt it as a, a longtime uh, fanboy of uh, Judith and Anders Toth, but especially Judith. <laughs> um, so next uh, next Twitter question, Andres, uh from Maritz Vandermeer. He asks, he says, uh, you often talk about material being irrelevant when you have a sufficient initiative or a strong attack. How can Mm -hmm. one learn to balance these better, especially when there doesn't seem to be a force to mate? This is a tough one. Um, And this is actually a a really good question in the sense that this is an issue that I find a lot with uh, adult improvers. And I have shared already various theories about this particular issue of why, in my opinion, it happens more so with adults than with children, which uh, I'm happy to repeat very briefly. So I have a theory that as grown-ups in every walks of life, we are very materialistically minded. And I don't mean it with a negative connotation. It's just how adults are wired, that I need to pay off my house, I need to earn enough money so that I can feed the family, I need to make sure that I can retire when I want, yada, yada, yada. It's all a materialistic concept that is based around what I have. And so to compare, this translates very easily to the chessboard because I take more stuff than they do. I'm ahead of the game. I'm good. And to translate that, or rather to compare that against uh, an obscure concept, initiative, attack, that doesn't have a life equivalent. The same way how a bank account can very easily be you know, looked upon as how many pieces I have on the board. But uh, to answer the actual question... Um, this uh, miswired mentality, which, by the way, really doesn't work on the chessboard, it really doesn't, um, I think is best addressed if your first couple of steps, and this is really a rough answer to give because a lot of people obviously are way past their first couple of steps in the chess learning journey, are put on the right path by, for example, starting out with studying Morphe games, Mm -hmm. right? Because the, the ultimate lesson that we learn from Morphe which is probably one of the most important lessons in chess, really, is that material. Sorry, initiative and better development and central control always beats material. If that's the first thing that you hear, you know, and that is that it gets pounded into you that when you play chess, care not about material, care about development, open, fast attacks and initiative, then, you know, if that's your initial starting point, then how could you get the rest wrong, right? 
And for most, by the way, that is how it should begin. It's more through and through. And by the way, it's by no accident that almost all of my CPR courses, in fact, all of them feature Morphe games and start with Morphe games. Yeah. Because And the thing is that people go like, oh, yeah, but Morphe was in the 1800s. That's obsolete. No, it's not. Absolutely not. In fact, Leela Chess or, uh, and the, uh, the AIs, in my book, the best way to describe how they took the world by a whirlwind was that they actually managed to, to implement the Morphe concept in a far greater level in positions where we didn't think it was possible. So these ideas are very well, you know, alive and with us. And I think that, so to, to give a specific and exact answer, I think that game collections mm-hmm. are very important. And, you know, looking at those games with the right mentality, once again, a coach here is a great help who actually tells you that this is the real deal. This is how good chess is played. And once you see it, it modeled to you, it becomes your second nature, optimally. Okay, yeah, Great advice. And as you say, it is a constant, constant struggle for adults to be less materialistic. But yeah, these neural these neural nets, man, they're they're they are quite instructive the way they're just pitching pawns left and right. Um, oh yeah, and, and pieces and yeah, it's yeah. like whoa, something else altogether. Yeah. All right, we got one last improvement question, Andres, then we're gonna move on to some content discussion. This one is from Tom Ash, who says uh, he'd like some book recommendations for the King's Indian Bononi transposition stuff that you um, that you've been covering in your YouTube videos. He said he loves these lines and wants to know more about them, but there are many books and courses, so it's tough to choose. Oh, boy. That Now, yeah, that caught me absolutely off guard. And I did read that question on Twitter just before we started off, and now I'm like, whoa, boy, that is going to be rough. I, mean, I, I honestly, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, with the Beno- I like the Bononi Chessable course. I can I can definitely recommend that. Um, I, Who I'm is not- that one by Ben? Uh, it's a grandmaster. I'll have to check the name and uh, and get back to you in a second. Um, but um, but I'm not sure what he means by the transposition. Do you? Uh... I do though. So uh, the the uh, I do that so that I, I do know that. So I will cover that. So the way I, I approach the King's Indian with black is is that against various variations such as the Zamish, um, the four pawns attack, and a few other variations, I do recommend actually to play c5 and transition it into different kinds of Benonis. Uh, okay. And the reason why I do so is because, A, I believe that those transitions are actually good, but it also exposes you to a different pawn structure. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Look, I've, I don't really, from the top of my head, and it's not very often that I admit that, I can't recall a, a course or even a book that would de- deal with that in the, the best fashion. Cliched it may sound, the Pawn Structures Grandmaster Guide is a bit of a help, there because it obviously does deal with the Benoni structure and from there on out I would be actually quite willing to do some online research I do think that uh, the Leeches Masters database is a very underutilized tool by many uh, who are looking to you know back up their opening repertoire look for example games uh, the whole lot you just feed the position or set up the position on Leeches, press the book icon, and it's going to spit out immediately recent top Grandmaster examples. And I do think that they are great. Having said that, they have a a major shortcoming, which is nothing to do with the platform itself, and that is that they are not analyzed. Right. So that's where you either need a coach or you really need to, you know, figure out a way 
to make that particular content meaningful for you, which is where books would come handy. But honestly, I just got caught here. Like I've got nothing. Okay. Yeah. And the light, the Bononi Chessable course is by Grandmaster Mercia Parlegrass. But I also want to be clear that I, I can't speak to, like, I, I'm a part time, I'm a lapsed, I'm a recovering Bononi player who still likes to stick my toe in the water every once in a while. So I do have that course and study from time to time. And it's definitely like uh, top of the line in terms of the Bononi, but I can't speak to the transposition aspects as compared to the Kings Indian because I'm yeah. not a Kings Indian player. Yes, yeah, see, see, Ben, we are on the other side of uh, of this addiction that you seem to be battling at the moment, and <laughs> and we only do it when it suits us. So, you know, we, yeah. we take the, we take the Bononi if you allow me. This very poor analogy is like a party drug, like only on the occasion. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> only on the occasion. So the, you you don't do that as a lifestyle because that that can be damaging. But uh, on the odd occasion when the good old King's Indian allows us to transition, um, definitely right. And I don't know the course either, but I would be more than happy to say, knowing uh, reasonably well what type of a player um, Parligras is, is that it should be a, a fairly reliable source. Excellent. Sure. All right. Well, Andres, we got a couple YouTube related questions. So we're going to take one more oh. break and then we're going to get to those. I've been playing a bit of Blitz lately, and whenever I'm active online, it's fun to go to aimchess.com and ask their almighty algorithm to give me some insights from my games. It scrapes the sites, the playing sites automatically and gives you actionable intel. In my case, the real takeaway this time was I got a 7% in resourcefulness in recent games. Um, that's not very good. I need to get better at that. I need to fight harder when I'm losing in a blitz game, look for tricks. And of course, aim chess, as it highlights various aspects of your game, strengths and weaknesses, uh, shows you positions from the game so that you can practice, you can review tactics that you missed, uh, and learn lots and a fun way when you review. So please check out aimchess.com. If you decide to subscribe, use the code perpetual30. You can also use the link in the show description to get the same discount 30% off at aimchess.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we are back. And regular listeners may remember that when I talked to Andres a year and a half ago, um, we did discuss sort of lament because I think Andres is one of the best YouTube creators out there. And I know that it seems like especially in the chess Twitterverse, uh, it's a fairly common feeling you'll sometimes see posts on reddit saying he's he's underrated but somehow he stays underrated he, he does he is up to twenty one thousand youtube subs which is significant progress since our last talk um but it still should be more so andres where is your head when it comes to the youtube grind are you still going strong are you having second thoughts let's start with uh with that oh ben that 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 question is like uh, i should see uh I think a, a psychiatrist could write a book about where my head is. Like yeah. The the amount of conflicting feelings, thoughts, and uh, uh, emotions uh, that are going through my head on a daily basis when it comes to my YouTube channel, like I said, it, it could be easily a PhD dissertation for anyone who wishes to to indulge with uh, the psychology of a chess player. Uh, look, uh, 
for the time being, I keep going strong. Uh, it, it is. Uh, it really much feels like uh, the very famous character from Greek mythology, Sisyphus, who was uh, punished by the gods of having to roll up a massive rock on a hill. Yeah. Um, you can figure out how that ended. But um, I always try to be positive, and uh, what really keeps me going is the fact that although uh, the follow-up basis is absolutely meager, but they are very, very grateful folks. And so I feel like I would let them down if I pulled the plug on anything. And besides... Um, it would be dishonest of me not to admit the fact that the YouTube channel attracts a lot of attention to my other activities, which is coaching, chessable, the whole lot. So this is admittedly a circle that sort of, you know, ends in itself and feeds the system, although it would feed it a heck of a lot better if it was five times bigger. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I guess... Uh, you know, I'm fighting my battle and uh, at the same time coming to terms with the fact that I might not make it as a YouTuber. Okay. Well, I mean, you do have these other channels, but uh, I and many others hope you can stick with it. Brian Karen, friend of the pod, wants to know if you would recommend one of your YouTube videos. Uh, which <laughs> one would it be? Yeah, I actually saw that question too, by the way. Uh, look, I've got 500 plus videos already on my channel, so... Um, there is a fair bit there. Um, I would probably, the, the most popular ones, apart from the, the book recommendations, um, are the Amateur Mind series. There are a fair few videos in there that have been received really, really well. And recently I have made a fair few videos on calculation, how to become a deadly tactician, made it quite quickly um, one of my most popular videos, which, uh, again, still means absolutely nothing. But... Uh, in terms of numbers, but uh, that, that was one that was quite popular. So those. Okay. And I remember one time, Andres, you were talking on Twitter, like you came to Twitter sort of for advice and you were trying to figure out like, should you be trying to sort of hack the algorithm? Like when one video does better than, <laughs> better than you think, do you try to keep doing that or just sort of follow your instincts? Um, where did you end up on that? Like when, cause I struggle with this, of course, in terms of like, the types of guests I might select for the podcast. Like when mm. when one guest is unexpectedly popular, say it's a trainer or something, I'm like, oh, do I have another trainer or do I just keep doing what I'm doing? So I'm curious where you came down on, on this debate, uh, Andres. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I feel, feel a little bit like, uh, I think it was Einstein who said that the more I know, the more questions I have, or I don't know, like, <laughs> right. uh, it, it's just uh, the, the chaos and the question marks are just uh, increasing instead of disappearing. Um, what seems to happen that I definitely could have can put a finger on is is that when there is a a drama or something is happening in the chess world that puts chess uh, in the media uh, and on the front pages of the media, there is a bit of an uptake in views even in my videos who are not covering actually right. the drama. So when the when the Hans story broke. Um, my channel actually increased the rapid uh, uptake of subscribers and views as well. Uh, to be fair, when that happened, I did cover a game or two by hands, which was uh, actually, I was under a little bit of pressure from uh, uh, someone who is helping me with my YouTube channel, both in terms of content and visuals and whatnot. So let's just uh, name him as a manager. And actually, he's really, really trying his absolute best to push me towards more clickbaity content, and I'm resisting it uh, as best as I can. And to, to give you a very short answer, that is the way to go. Like nowadays, if you want to become anybody in YouTube, 
Uh, the more clickbaity, the easier it is to digest, the shorter it is, the less information you have, the more success you have. And I don't mean to offend anybody by saying this, but facts are facts. Uh, and I'm not, I, I have made a conscious choice of not going down that path. So I haven't altered the nature of my content for the last, you know, three, four years, and neither do I intend to. So, and in that way, you can say that, well, dude, then what's your problem? Like, stop complaining. You are basically your own, you know, obstacle. And I'm happy to accept that, by the way. So if anyone says that, I will just throw my hands in the air and go like, yep, um, that's totally spot on. There are other creators out there in the chess world, luckily, by the way, who do create meaningful content and are popular. So I still have faith that it's it's a it's a walkable path. It's just very rocky. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, and these things certainly can't be predicted. You know, like, uh, um, you know, things can change overnight, um, and it would be long overdue. Um, and we have a question from a friend of the pod, Duvapov on Twitter, who yep. um, perhaps felt your pain from, as we alluded to prior conversations and uh, Twitter exchanges and said, why don't you make videos of yourself playing your repertoires in online blitz and post them on YouTube or even post clips from your stream? Uh, that's, that's a good one. I have been thinking about doing that. I want to do that. The problem with that is, is that I have got a, a natural disliking and um, just mixed feelings towards uh, the very trendy speedruns, they are called. Um, just not my cup of tea. But uh, to answer the actual question, I think it would be really meaningful for the viewers if I did this inner speedrun style, which is that you start from rating zero and you see how far you go with that particular repertoire. The problem with that is, is that it's very difficult to execute because on the platform where I stream and I create content, you're not allowed to have secondary accounts. Oh, okay. And so it's very, very complicated and difficult with my current account, let's say for argument's sake that it's rated 2,600, to find the 700 rated player to play against. And where are right? you and if, Even if I do that, Half of the comments and half of the feedback that I'm going to get on YouTube is is that why am I bullying you know little children right. or people who started learning chess yesterday? This is not chess content. Uh, you are not a nice person. But what about not speed runs? What about just you playing blitz? Like yeah, look, um, that that has been the part of the plan, and I do think that uh, I'm going to do it. The the other thing that also probably works against me is that I by default am against the concept of uh, grabbing streaming content right into YouTube, right? So a lot of uh, YouTubers do that a lot, that they stream, then there's something happened on stream and they just take that video, but off it goes to YouTube and two birds killed with one stone and um, yeah, done dusted. But because of I have always done YouTube in a way where I actually put a lot of thinking into what videos I should make and how I'm presenting in them. And I'm not saying others don't. Um, it just is, it, it doesn't mesh well with me to to get something so random and ad hoc and just chuck it up on YouTube and here it is, peeps, watch it. So with other words, it would take another extra humongous amount of time for me to, to get that material ready. And YouTube is uh, um, taking a fair bit of my time as is. Yeah. So it's a very difficult juggle at the moment about how much time I dedicate to YouTubing 
and how much more am I willing to even add to that uh, already very substantial amount of time? Yeah, when it, especially when it's not. But the idea itself, credit to, the, I think it was Duvupov, yeah. uh, is a great one. I read it and uh, I do tend to intend to do that. That's good. Yeah, and it's always tough when people ask you like, no offense to Duvapov, I know he's coming from a good place, but people are like, why don't you do this additional thing? And you're like, well, I'm trying as hard as I can, you know? Like, um, yeah. um, But anyway, um, one last YouTube-related question uh, is from Raphael, who asks, he says, how difficult is it trying to create YouTube con con content compared to Twitch and Chessable? Compared to YouTube, Twitch, very. Compared to Chessable, not so much. So the, the three platforms require very different mentalities. Twitch is like you sit down and you entertain the crowds. And if you happen to be a, a decent chess player in the meantime, that helps. And that's Twitch for you. And again, no offense to anyone who is not falling into that category and is absolutely killing Twitch. I certainly am not, by the way. But, you know, that's that's more of a let's have some fun and, you know, some games. It's banter. It's it, it, it's trash talk. It's it's having fun. It's uh, it, it's just good vibes. That's what Twitch is. And for that, you don't need to do anything other than, you know, sit down, have a bit of a coffee and have fun with your viewers. <clears throat> like I said, with YouTube, it takes actually a lot of effort for me to come up with the idea, present it in the way that I think is the most instructive, then talk to the thumbnail designer, um, do the recording, uploading, all that shebang. It takes a fair bit of time. And what makes that difficult is, is that it's a daily grind. Like, yeah. I don't upload daily, but I upload frequently. So I frequently have to force myself, often force, but very often it does come luckily from circumstantial things like I see a good game or I see a position on Twitter or whatever but it's a daily process it's like the what do I cook for dinner type of idea and you always try to impress right so and as such it is actually quite uh, a taxing one not so much with Chessable funnily enough because with Chessable there is an overarching idea hey why don't you write a course for beginner E4 E5 and there it is and then you don't have to think about what to do. Now it's executing the idea, but the idea remains the same, right? It's the same course, it's E4, E5, away you go. And then I'm writing it for a month or two or three. But, um, you know, uh, the, the required creativity is entirely of different type because then I'm just, uh, I'm set on a path and on that path, I get to be creative and I, you know, can pick variations and ideas and lines and I'm more than excited to do that. But once again, that, that doesn't put you on that stress of trying to come up with stuff again that I haven't done, others haven't done, that strikes you as a novelty. And hopefully this is going to be the one that will, you know, you know, make the algorithm go like, this guy is kryptonite, let's, let's push him. So, yeah, I, I would say that YouTube is by far the most taxing. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It makes me gain all the more appreciation for the, the years of... Uh... Years of work on it. Um, Andres, last question I think is um, what you're working on. Do you have any new chessable courses in the pipeline or anything else uh, coming up? Yeah, yeah. So the, the example I just brought up was actually my life right now. So I am putting the finishing touches on the beginner's E4, E5. Oh, great. I'm super excited about it, by the way. Um, it is, um, again, after a D4 course, which I really, really enjoyed making, and I do think that. Uh, 
Oh, by the way, my next YouTube video is going to cover that a little bit. It's going to be quite epic, uh, the D4 course. So E4, E5 is coming out, I would say, a month and a half, depending okay. on how quickly I work and how quickly we do the videoing. And after that, right after that's done, I'm going to jump into D4, D5, beginner for black. So we, we completed a circle here. So we did E4, beginner for white, D4, beginner for white. And then we do a black E4, E5 and the black D4, D5 which is going to be, by the way, I'm going to give away that much, uh, built around the Slav. Okay. So the D4, D5 is built around the Slav. And the, the E4, E5, is it straight classical or Petrov? Or, um... uh, it, it's 96, so okay. we are embracing, we are embracing uh, oh, yeah, the whole spectrum. Cool. All right. Well, it sounds good, Andres. Anything else before we uh, wrap up? It's always fun to, to chat with you. Oh, no, I'd say it was just an absolute pleasure to be with you, Ben. I always love to come and, uh, you know, share my thoughts. So I hope that the, the audience liked it. Sure. And uh, YouTube, Chess Coach Andres. Uh, listeners, you got to subscribe. You got to check out his stuff, Chessable. Um, and you said Twitch, you're still you're still doing some Twitch too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a very different style, though. So sometimes I'm reluctant to attract attention to that. <laughs> That's not so much the educational guy who, okay. who tells you how to play chess well. You know, that's that's a bit more laid back and relaxed. Excellent. All right, Wanderers, well, it's always fun to chat. And uh, yeah, look look forward to your continued success and chessable courses. Thanks, Ben, and thanks for having me. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.